If you have your Bibles, would you turn to Hebrews chapter 1? Our text this morning will be verses 1 through 4. Hebrews sets out the argument that Christ is superior. We see the superiority of Christ throughout the book of Hebrews. And it's stressing the superiority of Christ to those that were considering a return to Judaism. Uh, Those that were looking to go back to their old way of life in the midst of persecution. And the superiority of Christ is brought out through an exploration by the author here of who Jesus is. Let me ask you, who is Jesus? There are, in the scriptures, in the New Testament, there are a couple places where you find very rich and vivid and almost incomprehensible language that describe the nature and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. John, for instance, in the first 18 verses, it's John's prologue, those first 18 verses are as deep as you can get on the person of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Share of the work of Christ and the nature of, of Christ in taking on human flesh. Hebrews, likewise, is one such place where we see such rich and vivid language of the person of Christ that it is incomprehensible. But it does begin to answer the question, who is Jesus? In church history, we have had all sorts of answers, and during the time of Christ, we had all sorts of answers of who this person was. And in our modern day, we have all sorts of images and conceptions of of who Jesus is. But what does the Bible teach us about Jesus? When we look at these four verses here, we see that He is the final revelation of God. We see that Jesus Himself is the heir of, of creation. We see that he is the agent of creation. That he is the radiance of the glory of God. That is to say that he is God. We see that he providentially governs over all of creation. We see that he provides a full salvation. We see that he is sovereign ruler. And then we see that he is superior to that of the spiritual world. That's just in those four verses. So this is a very rich passage of Scripture. Let us read it together, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is far more excellent than theirs. This is the word of God, and may He bless the reading of it. In verse 1 and halfway through verse 2, there were the first part of verse 2, we see the argument by way of contrast, and we looked at this last week, 
how Jesus is the final revelation of God. Thus, he is the superior revelation. He is the complete revelation of God. All previous revelation of God, as we see in the Old Testament, was pointing towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Christ, the revelation of God is made complete and made final. He goes on then to say and argue in the superiority of Christ. He says these words halfway through verse 2. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. That is the son has been appointed the heir of all things. And we just need to stop right there and look at what this means. And look at the richness of this in terms of how it influences us, in terms of teaching us who the Son is and what that means for us. It says the Son is appointed the heir of all things. And so specifically, it's the Father that has appointed the Son to be heir of all things. Now, we, we should ask this question, what does it mean that he was appointed and when did this appointment take place? We're going to look at it for, from two ways. First, the appointment of the Son to be heir of all things is an eternal appointment. It's something that took place in eternity. And then we also see that it's also something that takes place in Scripture itself. So we see it in two ways. We see the appointment of the Son to be heir of all things from an eternal perspective and then from a scriptural perspective. So when was the Son appointed? In eternity. He was appointed in eternity. It is an eternal appointment. It does not have a starting place. It did not just pop into God's mind at some point that He would appoint His Son it doesn't just all of a sudden God sees a need for something and says, that's what I will do. Because what is it that we know about God? God is immutable. And immutability means He does not change. And to say that He does not change means this. Write it down. He doesn't change. We change. We change quickly. We change on a whim. We change because of things come at us and influence us to change. Because we can't see around the corner. Not only does God see around the corner, but He wrote what's around the corner. He doesn't change. Everything that takes place happens according to His plan. And His plan is an eternal plan. If it was not an eternal plan, then that means it's conditioned upon something outside of God, then God has become dependent. So prior to creation, before anything was created, God had already appointed the Son. You see, time begins in creation. God's not subject to time. God doesn't have a watch and make sure He's on time for His appointment. We are dependent on time. We live in time. We experience time as a sequential order of events taking place. That's not 
what God experiences. We're finite. God is infinite. God has no end. God is outside of time. He's not controlled by time. Whereas you and I very much are. And God is not like us. And we need to wrestle with this. We need to wrestle with this idea of God's eternal plan. So oftentimes when we look and try to think about the correlation between our human freedom, our will, and God's sovereignty, we don't think very seriously about the fact that God is outside of time and He has planned all that takes place and it's not dependent upon us. It's dependent upon Him. Often, Times when we speak of God's plan, or is what sometimes called is called God's decree, we speak of it as if it's up in the air, as if God's plan is based upon us or conditioned upon us. But look at a few passages of Scripture that make this point. In terms of our salvation, 2 Timothy 1.9 says this, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. We experience everything when the ages began, but what was before then? It was eternity. And before eternity had even, or before time even began, in eternity, God had called people according to his own purpose before they were even created. It was before the ages began. So before time began, there's this eternal purpose in God that is spoken about. You see it again in Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That is, before time began, there's this plan, there's this decree that God has that's in eternity, that, doesn't, that means it doesn't, if it's eternal, it doesn't have a starting place. It's just God's eternal plan. And so we see very clearly this eternal plan of God. Now, what does that have to do with the Father appointing the Son? You may think these verses I've read have to do with salvation. Yes, and our salvation is based upon the completed work of Christ, which was determined when? In eternity. Think of Psalm 33. The counsel of the Lord stands forever the plans of His heart to all generations. And when we think about the person of Christ Himself, Peter says this in 1 Peter 1, in verse 20, He, that is Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. And as God, before time began, had chosen to send his son. Now, theologians call this the covenant of redemption. You see in Scripture all sorts of covenants. You see the Davidic covenant. You see the Abrahamic covenant. 
you see the covenant of Sinai. You see various covenants that are spelled out very clearly in word and name. But theologians refer to this, what took place in eternity, as the covenant of redemption. And that is this, is that God chose in eternity between the eternal counsel of Himself, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have a plan to bring about salvation. That's called the covenant of redemption. That's what takes place within the counsel of God Himself. But that's realized, that's realized in time in what we would call a covenant of grace or the new covenant. But you see this appointing of it, of Christ, in terms of its eternal perspective. Luke chapter 22, verse 29 says this, And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. That's Luke chapter 22, verse 29, where Jesus says that the Father had assigned him a kingdom. And the word assigned is literally the Father covenanted a king, to me a kingdom. That is speaking of that eternal plan of the Father with the Son. We see in Isaiah chapter 42, the Trinitarian nature of this plan. In verse 1, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. That is speaking of the Father sending his Son, the servant, who will be empowered by the Spirit. The one who will bring forth justice to the nations that he has dominion over. Our triune God is one in his will and in his work. But as we understand this, as it tells us in Isaiah, the Son didn't send the Father. The Father did not die upon the cross. The Holy Spirit did not die upon the cross, but the Son died upon the cross. But yet their will and their work is one. And the work that was an eternal plan was to send the Son. And in that, the Son was appointed heir of all things. This is why in Scripture, if that's beyond comprehension for you, it is for everyone. But it is why we see in Scripture statements of the counsel of His will or the purposes of His will. It is all according to God's purpose, and that purpose is an eternal purpose. Let me ask you if you struggle with this a couple of questions to think about. When did God's will begin? When did the will of God begin? If it had a starting point, then God's not eternal. And if it changed, that means that God is mutable and is open to change. When did God's plan hatch? Or rather, when did He create a plan? So if we can answer these questions without saying they are eternal, 
It means that God had only part of the picture in place. The plan was only in part, and thus it means God changed. So it's so crucial that when we read this text, that whom he appointed the heir of all things, we understand the eternal appointment. Because here's the thing. Here's where we have to go with this. If God can change, then that changes everything that you and I know and believe. We have no hope if God can change. We have no rest if God can change. We have no security if God can change, because if his plan is not eternal, then it is dependent, it is conditioned, it is contingent. And if God could change in the past, guess what? He can change again. And if he can change now, we have no hope of Christ returning, do we? If he could change now, there's no hope that the promises of God are true and that they are yours and the Lord Jesus Christ, if God could change. And so let us take rest in this, in this mystery of God, that His ways are, are higher than our ways. And what Scripture teaches us of our triune God, He is sovereign, He providentially rules according to His plan that is unchangeable and eternal. And the second thing that we see about this is not only he appointed the heir of all things in eternity. He has appointed the heir of all things according to Scripture. So when was the Son appointed? Well, He was appointed in eternity. Yes, it's part of the eternal plan of God, but it's also revealed to us according to the Scripture. And why is that? Well, to be heir of something relates to one's dominion what one has control over, what one owns. Adam, who was our representative, Adam, who was our federal head, what was he given in the garden? God said, this is yours. Take dominion over it. You're the king of the garden. This is all yours. In fact, he says that to him after he creates him. He says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. What does Adam do, though? The whole earth was under his governance. He was given rightful ownership of all things. Adam had control over all. He was the king of all of creation. But his dominion was deeply impacted, wasn't it, when he ate? What, what once produced fruit that he could go freely eat of and enjoy, we see that because he fell, God says to Adam in chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. 
Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." Whereas Adam had eternal life in the garden given to him based upon his obedience to God, he chose to rather worship the creation than worship the Creator. And as a result, no longer could he just go and enjoy the fruits of the world that he was king over, but now the world itself fought against him. You know this. Your life experiences this. We eat by the sweat of our brow. And then, throughout our life, we experience the aches and pains of a physical body that is decaying. This is what we experience. We know this to be very true. That dominion that Adam had over the earth was deeply impacted. And that to spread this would actually now, because of the fall, cause pain. What do I mean by that? Look at chapter 3, verse 16 of Genesis. I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now there's pain in bringing forth a generation that is supposed to take dominion over the earth. And you see in the rest of that verse, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That invites family issues now and struggles into the picture. As the Puritan John Owen says, quote, the whole subordination of all things unto him and by him unto God was lost. In other words, Whereas Adam could freely walk amongst the beast, where Adam could freely eat, where he could enjoy fellowship with God and his wife without strife, all of a sudden, those things fought against him. The dominion he had, the airship of all that was given to him, was lost. But however, God tells us, and tells Adam that there will be a second Adam that will be victorious over the world. We see that in chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What is that a statement of? Is that there is coming one that will be heir of all things and he will be victorious over all things, and he will take dominion over all things, because he is appointed by God's word to be heir of all things. Now let me just tell you this. If God plans it, then God orders it exactly to how it will take place. And God did. Now, you, you consider the promise to Abraham that was given 
In chapter 22, in verse 17, I, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the, as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. There's this promise to Abraham that Romans chapter 4, verse 13 tells us is, is received by faith. That is a promise that the seed of Abraham will inherit all the earth and will be victorious over it. That's a promise of heirship of all that exists. That's coming. You consider Balaam's final oracle. You remember Balaam. He was to pronounce curses against God's people, but... He was not able to. He only spoke that which God put in his mouth. But even Balaam saw this, this eternal heirship of all things. In Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities. What is that speaking of? One will come will be given a scepter, that is, one will come that will be a king and will be exercising his dominion over all that exists. Consider what Isaiah tells us of the coming Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9. We read these wonderful words in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is a statement that there's one coming that will have heirship of all that exists, And it describes the wonderful nature of this government that he will institute. It's a promise of dominion and lordship of one that's coming. And specifically, we're told, it's to us a child is born, pointing forth in prophetic nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. But probably the clearest statement of this is Psalm 2. In fact... Hebrews even references Psalm 2. So we know that this certainly had to have been in his mind. We see this of the Lord's anointed in Psalm 2, verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. 
That is a statement that the Son will have possession of all that exists. Now just go back to that, that previous way that this is revealed to us. It's revealed to us in eternity. It's revealed to us in Scripture. If you look at verse 6, it says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He set him on this hill as part of his plan in eternity. You see, this verse not only shows us what was to come, but when it was decided, it was eternally. So when was the son appointed heirship? Well, he was appointed in eternity, and he was appointed according to Scripture. The second thing I want you to notice about our passage in Hebrews, if we could go back there for just a second is this, is it's the Father gives the Son heirship, whom He appointed the heir of all things. Now, all sorts of theological conundrums pop up because of this. Let me just give you a couple to think about. An heir normally acquired their inheritance by death. That's how we normally understand the word. But the father doesn't cease his ownership of all things, nor does the father die. That's an interesting way to look at it, right? There's something else. You know this. The son is eternally God. There's never been a point where the Son wasn't God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That is, eternally, the Son is God. So, was there ever a point where the Son didn't already own all things? No, the Son has always owned all things. He is eternally God. So, what does it mean, then, that He is the heir? You see, the problems that are created is this if we begin to ask questions of the text. They really stretch our mind. What does that mean then? It means he receives that which was promised to him in the Old Testament. He took on flesh. He took on our nature. And this heirship is the incarnation where Jesus the Son, sent by the Father, fulfills his role as mediator in the flesh, by taking on human nature. You see, nothing could be added or taken from the Son because the Son is fully God. But in taking on human nature, an act of incomprehensible condescension, he became heir as the second Adam. So what was an eternal plan of decree of God is realized in time? In other words, what God had planned in eternity takes place in time. Jesus in time becomes a man. Jesus in time is born a virgin. Jesus in time lived as a man. Jesus in time walked the streets of Galilee. Jesus in time fulfilled the law. He fulfilled his Father's will. Jesus in time died, was buried, 
and he was resurrected. And in time, he ascended because the disciples saw him ascend. We now live in time and we experience his mediatorship on our behalf. You see, there's this point in time where he takes on flesh. And so when it says he is appointed the heir of all things, as God, he already owns all things. But in time, as the Son fulfills his mission, he becomes heir of all things. Notice how Scripture answers this question. In John chapter 17, this is before Christ goes to the cross and he is, he is praying. This is the true Lord's prayer. Jesus says this in John 17, verse 2, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. There's this picture of the Father giving something to the Son. You have given him all power. We're Baptists, and so our, our key statement and mission is the Great Commission, right? Think about the giving of the Great Commission. What does it say in Matthew chapter 28? You look at verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, was there ever a period where he did not have all authority? No. He's eternally God. But this is speaking of this idea that as he takes on human flesh, there comes this point where the Father gives him this. In Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Specifically, we're told here he is to be heir, and that he is sovereign Lord over all. You think of that wonderful passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-11, through 11, where it says, One day every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess. Prior to that, it says that God bestowed upon him a name that is above every name. You know what that name is? It's not the name Jesus. It's Lord. That he is over all things. There's never a time where the Son did not have lordship. But the completion of his mission, it shows us his inheritance that is his. By the way, did, did Christ receive this and just stop ruling, or is he even ruling now? In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 20 and verse 21, Paul roots his confidence in this fact that Christ is ruling right now. He says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That is that Christ has dominion over all things right now. There's nothing outside of his control. 
When you think about how Hebrews makes the argument that he comes from the line of Melchizedek in chapter 7, verse 15, where we read this, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Why is it so important we see the connection of Christ to Melchizedek? Is because Melchizedek is a priest and a king. And what do we see? That Christ has an indestructible life, that He is an eternal King that has eternal heirship over all things. And so we see that the Father has appointed Him heirship. It was in eternity. It's according to Scripture. But then what is the nature of it? How much did Christ receive? Well, I want you to notice this word, all thanks. Now, in Scripture, all things does not always mean all things without question. We don't use the word all in that sense. If I dropped my Bible right now and I could say, you all saw that, but you know what I mean when I say that. Maybe not all of you without exception saw it because someone might have been looking down or looking another way or you blinked at that moment. But you know what I mean when I say, you all saw that. It doesn't always mean all. Here... It means all, without exception. It means universally all things are Christ. This is given in an absolute sense. And we know that this is in an absolute sense because of the context of Hebrews itself. You'll notice that it says, through whom also he created the world. The world that he created, the Son, it tells us, is the heir of all things. You look at verses 10 and 11. Quoting Psalm 102, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are your handiwork. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. This is, again, speaking of that universal and eternal creation that all things are given to the Son. What a wonderful promise that there's nothing that's not under the Lordship of Christ. Whereas Adam lost his dominion. Abraham did not receive the promises. Israel did not. They failed. Their greatest king failed. It it was all changeable. They all failed to take ownership of what God had given him. But the Son, an unchanging one, now has dominion, heirship, lordship over all things without exception. This is why it's so imperative that we see the beauty and importance of what the Scripture teaches us about the person of Christ. He is truly man and truly God. Truly man that has inherited all but He's truly God, that He is eternal, unchangeable, and all that He has inherited will always be His. This is why Romans 9.5 says, The Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Christ is God over all things. And because He is God and He is over all things, then they are eternally under His dominion. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 27, For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. All things are under the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing outside of Christ's dominion. There's no one that has authority over Christ. Earthly kings do not. Satan does not. Demons do not. Presidents do not. Governors do not. Armies do not. Terrorists do not. Those that would seek to persecute you do not have authority over Christ. No one does. All earthly powers are under the rule of Christ. Are they in rebellion? Yes. But have they taken God by surprise? No. Are things happening according to His plan that is eternal? Yes. You see, here's the wonderful truth that our Savior has received heirship of all things. Is this, is if you are in Christ, you're secure. And if we answer this in any other way that Christ wasn't Lord over all things, then we can't say these wonderful comforting words. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Have you ever stopped and really meditated upon that? How could they work together for good unless there's a sovereign God that has decreed what would take place according to His plan? And His plan is not conditioned upon us. Look at the wonderful truth of this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. If you have been called by God, you will persevere. Because Christ will see to it. He is the heir of all things. There is no power over him. Are you in Christ this morning? Now I think that we've seen various ways in which this brings us comfort, but I want us to specifically see how Scripture applies the heirship of Christ to us. The first thing we have to recognize is Christ of heir, is heir of all things. And if you are in Christ, guess what? You're co-heirs. Romans chapter 8 verse 17 says this, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. If you're in Christ this morning, you're a co-heir with Christ of all things. Because He is the heir of all things. And so what do we inherit through our sovereign Lord? The first thing that Scripture shows us is this is eternal life. In fact, we're told in Matthew chapter 19, in verse 29, is this is, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. If you're in Christ this morning, you have eternal life, and that eternal life is given now. You're not waiting for it. 
It is right now. That is our hope. That is why Jesus says, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Because Christ is life. Christ gives eternal life. And you are the heir of eternal life if you are in Christ. So, we, we see that we are an heir of this as part of our inheritance is salvation from our sins. We see in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14, Are they not all ministering spirits sent to, out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? You have received forgiveness and had salvation from your sins. And in this, your inheritance is an imperishable life. 1 Corinthians chapter 50, 15, verse 50 says this, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Why can we inherit eternal life? Because you will be given an imperishable body, and an imperishable, indestructible life will be given to you. We're told this in 1 Peter in chapter 1, in verse 4, that we are given an inheritance that is imperishable. Imperishable life. What we have been given in Christ can only perish if Christ could perish. We also see this as that in Christ we inherit all the promises of God. We see in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Why do we receive the promises? Because all the promises of God and fulfillment are in the one who was appointed heir of all things. And there's one last thing I want to point to us out to us is this, is that you actually inherit all that exists all that we see. That's yours in Christ. Matthew chapter 5 tells us this in verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You'll inherit the earth. You might look at the pollution and the degradation of our environment and think, that's not much. It will all be made new. And the creation itself groans waiting for that day where it will be. And it's yours in Christ because Christ is Lord, given dominion over all that exists. And then Christ makes you co-heir with him. This is a current reality, and I can't stress this enough, is that when we see where the author of Hebrews tells us this, whom he appointed the heir of all things, that is the Son. This is a current reality. And listen carefully to me now. So often Christians place their, their hope entirely in the future, not recognizing it is now. I hear this phrase often, I know the end of the book and he wins. Friends, what we have seen this morning from God's word is not the end of the book. It's according to an eternal, immutable plan that is revealed right from the beginning of the book 
and continues through to the end. We're not waiting for Christ to return or to win. We're not waiting for Christ to inherit the earth. We're not waiting for Christ to be Lord. Christ is Lord now. He has already experienced victory. And so if you have received Christ as your Lord and Savior, these promises are yours in Him even now. Because He was appointed heirship of all things. And all things means all things. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Son whom You appointed in eternity and according to Your Word to be heir of all that exists. We thank you that he is our conquering king, that he is victorious over all things and has dominion over all things. And this is the basis of our hope is the Lord Jesus Christ and his completed work. And we draw so much comfort from knowing that we who are in Christ are given all things and that they are according to your immutable, indestructible, unchangeable plan. I pray this comforts us now, Father, as we see a world that seems to be out of control, but we know that things are happening according to your plan. We know that the the things that we experience that bring bring us pain, that, Father, you have turned nations over to their own desires and pleasures, and that is your wrath upon them. And in that, we are reminded that you are sovereign over all that happens. And so may we never forget that Christ is Lord now, He has dominion now, his heirship of all things, and that we in him have co-heirs of all those promises. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.